Welcome to Agape Ministries Podcasts, a whole new way of thinking. Episode 47, part one of Mary Hardiman's talk, The Power of God's Word in Our Lives. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for that lovely prayer. St. Peter once said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. And I would echo those sentiments this morning. I used to teach at a mainstream Catholic high school in Salford. And I had a colleague there called Jackie. Jackie and I used to share what we called our kingdom moments. And by that, I mean a point in the day when God would drop a spoonful of his sweetest honey. And that honey came in lots of different guises. A nice piece of work, a compliment, gratitude, an affirmation, or simply something that we just found funny. The trick, though, was to stick your tongue out, metaphorically speaking, of course, in time to capture the honey and savour its sweetness before it just became a sticky mess on the bottom of your shoe. A particular kingdom moment came for me one day when I was sitting in my empty classroom marking some books. And two year 11 boys came in and asked if they could do some silent revision for the GCSE RE exam. So they had to study some parables from St. Mark's Gospel, as well as learning a long glossary of religious terms. And there were some big words in there to describe God. Words like omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Omniscient, meaning all-knowing. And omnipresent, meaning all-over or everywhere. Now, these two boys, they were nice enough, but if I were to tell you that they'd previously been arguing about which of them had beaten the other in a staring competition, (laughs) you'll maybe get some idea that they weren't exactly renowned for their high levels of academic prowess. So, at the words, silent revision, I started a mini one-woman sweepstake in my head as to which of them would buckle first and how long it would take, and boy, did I hit the jackpot that day. Because not five minutes had gone by when one of them threw his book down on the desk and he said, I can't do this, it's too hard. What's the point? I'm never going to need it. I hate RE, it's boring. Why do we have to do it? Well, you're in a Catholic school. Um, On and on he went. In fact, I think his rant lasted longer than his revision. (laughs) And just at the point when I thought he'd finished and it was safe for me to speak, he blurted out this question. He said... Who invented this stupid subject anyway? Was it God or Jesus? (laughs) And his friend gave him a long, withering look and with 100% certainty and not a hint of irony replied, You muppet, everybody knows it was Moses. How much do I love teenagers? You know, I had to go in the store cupboard for five minutes to regain my composure afterwards. But I can't help thinking that there's something of that boy's frustration and confusion in all of us. If you were to draw a caricature of me reading the Bible, I'd probably have a a bewildered expression on my face and a big question mark over my head. So this morning, I want to do three things. One is to take a story from the Bible and bring it to life. Two, is to share with you how that story is related to some of my personal experience with God 
and how he did a new thing for me. And number three, I want this talk to seek nicely into our hour of Eucharistic adoration, which follows as soon as I finish speaking. So the story is from the Book of Kings, and it's about a man called Elijah. You may have heard of him. He's quite well known around these parts. He didn't invent Ari. That was Moses, as we now know. But Elijah is the one who went to heaven in a chariot. And I want you to hold on to that scary thought, please. Now, this reading is my all-time, bar none, favourite reading from the whole Bible. I think it has so much to tell us about perseverance in faith, about patience, about tenacity, about courage and fortitude, and ultimately about finding God in the stillness of the soul. Above all, for me, it's a lesson in Eucharistic adoration. And if you've guessed what the reading is by the clues I've just given, you can see me later for a gold star chufty badge. So the reference is um, from the first book of Kings. It's chapter 19 and it's verse 9 and then it's verse 11 to 13. Now I'm going to read it to you, but a warning because I'm prone to quite high levels of emotion whenever I read this, so you may have to bear with me. Elijah went into the cave and spent the night in it. Then he was told, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Then the Lord himself went by. There came a mighty wind, so strong it tore the mountains and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there came the sound of a gentle breeze. And when Elijah heard this, he covered his face with his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. I think that's a stunning piece of writing. I don't know about you. But let me just rewind a bit. So Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. You probably don't need me to tell you that. And we know that Old Testament is before Jesus. But did you know that the dictionary definition of the word prophet is this? It's a person regarded as being sent by God to teach people. A person regarded as being sent by God to teach people. So, if God were to come to your parish and say, hands up everybody, who'd like to go back in time and be an Old Testament prophet? I'm not so sure he'd get the same enthusiastic response as if, say, a primary school teacher were to say to a class, hands up everybody, who'd like to be milk monitor or (laughs) register monitor or any other monitor? Because it takes children, what, a nanosecond to make the connection between milk monitor duties and potentially missing out on five minutes of maths. (laughs) So you get every child in the room, don't you, hanging off the end of the seat with their hands in the air, bursting out of the clothes like the donkey in the Shrek film, shouting, pick me, pick me. (laughs) If God, and maybe I'm doing your parish a disservice, and I do apologise if I am, but I think if God were to ask for volunteers to be an Old Testament prophet... I imagine it to be one of those tumbleweed moments when our neighbours' shoelaces suddenly become a source of intrigue. 
don't pick me. And there are four reasons I would not like to be an Old Testament prophet. Number one, and I'm sorry to say this, but nobody likes you. Like, let's not kid ourselves. Number two, which links in with number one, prophets always seem to get into trouble, usually involving somebody's death. Number three, you never get a lie-in because God's always telling you to get up. (laughs) Yeah, it's like somebody's mum in the morning. And number four, my sense of direction is so pathetic that if God were to send me to Nineveh, for example, I'd probably end up in Wolverhampton. (laughs) And even if, and that's true, honestly, and even if God were to say to me, well, all right, Mary, I won't lie to you. It might be rubbish for a bit, but hey, you get to go to heaven in a chariot. (laughs) No chance. I watch Ben-Hur. I'm going nowhere in a chariot. I'd be like, don't call me God, I'll call you. (laughs) So, like every reluctant prophet, poor old Elijah's got the job, brackets, that nobody else wants. So if he's a prophet regarded as being sent by God to teach people, why is he in a cave on the mountain? Well, the reason is this. The king at the time, King Ahab, he was worshipping a different god, a god called Baal. So Elijah, to prove that his God was the one true God, has this almighty showdown with the prophets of Baal, during which he not only humiliates them, but he also puts them to the sword and has them all killed. So didn't I tell you that prophets were always in trouble involving the death of somebody else? So King Ahab is angry, and King Ahab tells his wife, Queen Jezebel, what's taken place, And now Jezebel wants him dead. Sorry, that's Elijah she wants dead, by the way, not the king. Mind you, if he kept leaving a wet towel on the bed after his shower, who's to say what what she may or may not want? So essentially, essentially, Elijah's afraid of a woman. Do you know what? I'm just looking around the room here at all the men thinking, hashtag ring any bells? So Elijah takes himself off to Mount Horeb. And Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is a place where Moses met God at the burning bush. And God said, take off your shoes, Moses, for the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. It's the holy ground where Yahweh revealed himself and commissioned Moses to set the Israelites free. Mount Horeb is, I believe, a reminder of God's protection, of his presence, his love, and his relationship with his beloved. It's a place where God came down. And how blessed and how fortunate are we that we have no need to travel to Mount Horeb or any mountain for that matter. We can all have our own Mount Horeb, a place where we can feel God's protection and love a place where God comes down, and it's there every time we meet Jesus in the most holy sacrament of the altar. Elijah's journey to the mountain takes him 40 days. Jesus truly is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Look at the comparison. 
Elijah's journey was 40 days. Jesus spent 40 days in the desert. Elijah battled the hurricane, the earthquake, and the fire. Jesus battled the devil three times when he was tempted with power, possessions, and disbelief. Both emerged from these difficult experiences ready for a new thing. There's just layer upon layer. And I imagine that road to Emmaus must have been something else. Now, I don't know about you, but I used to trivialise and dismiss these biblical journeys. I try not to do this anymore. But I'm thinking, Elijah travelled for 40 days. So what? The poor old Israelites were mooching around the desert for 40 years. So 40 days isn't that long, really. Unless, say, it's Lent and you're off cake. Then that's a different story altogether, (laughs) isn't it? But I'm also thinking that Elijah probably called in on some family members or old neighbours en route. Somebody would have fed him a nice lamb stew with jam roly-poly and custard to fortify him for the journey. And when he got to the mountain, I don't think it would have been that steep, really, more of a gentle incline, no need for ropes or crampons. And I'm quite certain there would have been a plethora of deluxe caves to choose from, all fully equipped with a pot belly stove and a memory foam mattress. What's not to like? No. No, Mary, no. What was that journey like for Elijah? Did he set off in a great hurry? Did he get the opportunity to say his goodbyes properly before he left? Physically, was he hungry, thirsty, tired, cold, sweaty, sunburned, soaked, blistered, injured? Emotionally, did he feel lonely, abandoned, afraid or threatened? Did Elijah lose his way? You can bet your life I would have. And why is Elijah's journey relevant for us today? Well, you may want to think of our beloved refugees and asylum seekers who risk everything to come here and we give them a dog's life. I'm a a linguist by trade and I used to be an interpreter for Greater Manchester Police. On the morning of John Paul II's funeral, I was called out to Longsight Police Station to interpret for a French-speaking woman from the Democratic Republic of Congo. She was an asylum seeker, and she was also making a complaint about the police in her country of origin. This woman had been arrested and held in custody for three months, and every night, every night, she was raped by one or more of the guards. And in the end, she saw an opportunity to escape and came to England. She was admitted to Manchester Royal Infirmary where she suffered a miscarriage. Her name was Carol and she was just 19 years old. How can we ever say, you're not welcome in my country, in my city, in my neighbourhood, in my street, and dare I say it, in my home?
Every encounter with God involves a journey. Elijah goes alone to the mountain. And for me, this signifies the inimitable nature of each of us and the unique gifts God in his generosity prepares for everyone. Not only that, but there'll always be one journey that each of us will make alone. And that's our final one which I hope and pray will be the journey to God himself, where we'll see him face to face and where we'll know beyond all doubt just how much he delights in us. Back to Elijah. We read that Elijah spends a night in a cave Now, I want to focus on two words in this passage. The first is night. I'm not so sure it's a literal night. I think it's more like the Last Supper when Judas leaves and we read night had fallen. This night for me signifies a dark time in Elijah's life, a time when God seemed absent. And I think this is really important. I think it's a key point because it's a test of faith And we all have them. And I wouldn't be surprised if this episode of Elijah's lasted weeks, months, or even years. The second word I want to focus on is the word cave. What did the cave look like? I imagine it to be cold, dark, pretty uncomfortable and uninviting. Could this cave be a metaphor for something else, for our challenges and tests, maybe? What does your cave look like? What's your challenge? What's the nature of your night? What would you like to bring before God today? We can sit in the cave of physical or mental illness, of caring for a loved one, for insecurity, addiction, a difficult childhood, domestic abuse, divorce, bereavement, financial worries, loss of faith. The list goes on. And how prepared are we to sit in the cave of another, not to fix or direct, but simply to be? Do we seek opportunities to support others who are struggling? Is there someone you know who's in a cave of some description? It can be really difficult to go there, and I know. When I'm counselling, I always say this little prayer that I was taught. I say, Lord, help me to be with this person as you are with me. Lord, help me to be with this person as you are with me. And when I do that, any frustration or impatience or difficulty I may be feeling just simply falls away. And all that's left is love. That thing we call agape. That pure, selfless love of God working in me and through me. It's so powerful. 
At the start of the story, Elijah's told to stand on the mountain. And we often think that we can stand out on the mountain, flexing our muscles and full of confidence, ready to do whatever the Lord calls us to do. But how soon after that first puff of wind do we find ourselves on our hands and knees, crawling back into the cave, reluctant to accept the new thing that God is offering? As I'm about to describe, we read, there came a mighty wind, so strong it tore the mountains and shattered the rocks before the Lord, as if Elijah wasn't afraid enough. What must that have been like for him in the cave? Imagine the wind, this powerful vortex, strong enough to rip up trees that have been there for hundreds of years. The noise so loud, it's like a jet plane is beside you. Picture that, the shaking and the sheer violence of it all. Debris everywhere. Elijah must have been blinded by it. God's not in the wind, so where is he? Here's a question for you to think about. Have you ever experienced a spiritual hurricane? And by that, I mean, has there ever been a time in your life where you felt uprooted and blown all over the place in your relationship with God? And maybe you're experiencing one now, I don't know. But I want to tell you about a spiritual hurricane I once had, a time when I felt torn and shattered in my life of faith. And I have to admit, it was entirely of my own making. But it started in 2011, and it lasted for about two years. I was working at this lovely Catholic high school with the funny boys I mentioned at the start, and I was there 15 years altogether. I'd been there about 13 years when this started. So by that point, I was very well established. And I was going nowhere. I had no desire to leave that school, and I was ready to see out my teaching days there. And then somehow, I felt that I was going to have to leave that school and go elsewhere, but I had no idea where God wanted me to be. I had no idea that he was doing a new thing for me. Do you not perceive it? No, I didn't. I was experiencing a sense of restlessness, and lots of things were happening that made me feel inadequate at work. But I really, really didn't want to go. And job hunting became a futile activity and I got so mad with God. There was a kind of hurricane going on inside me that was affecting every aspect of my life and nowhere more so than my prayer life. So prior to this, if you'd have asked me what my prayer life was like, I would have said, well, it's highly satisfactory, thank you very much. (laughs) I'd come down in the morning, I'd open my missile, I'd go through the readings for the day, And then I would spend some time happily reflecting on how I was one of the 99 sheep who stayed put on the hillside, (laughs) simultaneously building my house on rock whilst yielding a harvest of a hundredfold with my five talents. (laughs) I'm not a whiff of hypocrisy. Look, can you see a broad phylactery or a long tassel? No, and neither could I because I, I was on Team Jesus. (laughs) I was out there on the mountain ready to do whatever the Lord asked. And what happened during this spiritual hurricane was that I'd stomp downstairs in the morning, fling myself on the settee without even bothering to get the missile off the shelf because that was a waste of time. And then I'd just go on this rant at God. Now, I'm going to give you a warning because what I'm about to say, it may sound sarcastic and irreverent and disrespectful, but it was authentic. And we're always told, aren't we, that we have to come before God just as we are. So I did. 
and what I was was angry. So it went something like this. Look, God, what do you want? You see, it's all well and good for you up there on your cloud, stroking your beard and welcoming sinners into eternity. And I know it only took six days and it was ages ago, so you've probably forgotten, but this earth you created, I still live on it. And in case you haven't noticed, God, we're in the middle of a recession. And nobody, I mean nobody with a modicum of common sense, leaves a secure, well-paid job with nothing to go to. So you might be omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent, but if you imagine, God, for one minute that I can do this, and you're going to have a rethink, because I don't want to be on your team anymore. So there. And a new thing was absolutely the last thing I wanted. So thank you for taking the time to listen to these episodes. Our prayer is that as you listen and reflect on these teachings, that you'll be encouraged to continue your journey to maximise your potential to have a good and a happy life. So sign in again next week for more teaching on how you can follow the Jesus way to experience your life is filled with meaning, purpose and joy. So God bless and stay safe.